It is good to know that we have a God who does hear our plea, that we can call out Him while we're here on this side of eternity and know that He hears us, that He listens to us. I'm glad to, to, that we're continuing this study this morning. Uh, life has been interesting of late. God has been faithful. Just from Suzanne and I, we want to express our appreciation to you as a church for your many kind condolences, the cards, the, the, the comfort that the Lord has comforted us with through you. And so we're just grateful for that and the loss of my dad. I wanted to take just a moment to say that. I do want to say that dad was the best example for me that I could possibly have had when God called me into the ministry. I got to see his life. I got to see how he thought. Now, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man who pursued God, who pursued God's character, who allowed God to use him in a lot of different ways. And really, that's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for everyone that is called to the role of pastor, that is called to the role of an elder or an overseer, a leader in the life of the church. And you may wonder why we're taking so long on this study. We spent two weeks on deacons, and we're going to try to just spend two weeks on, on elders. It, because it matters. It matters in the kingdom of God. It matters in the life and the expression of church. None of us are perfect. I'm certainly not coming to you saying, hey, look at me. I'm the model for how this looks completely fulfilled. We're talking about the direction of a person's life and discernible characteristics and moral character that God uses when he calls someone, and it matters. I don't know how many of you have kept up with the number of pastors who have had moral failures. I got a call again this past week from a, a pastor in Greenville who has an elder in his church who had a moral failure, and it's been so disruptive in the life of his church and harmful to the testimony of Christ. And there's some things that, that we need to grasp and that we need to understand. One of the things, I think, is that we need to be intentional in how we place people in roles of ministry, that we do need to understand the, the qualifications, that we do need to understand that there are expectations that God places upon those in his church. At Ephesus, it was a mess. Paul had been there. He'd been there for three years. He had spent probably most, as, as far as just calendar days, most of his time there in the city of Ephesus. He had left, and then he comes back through, and he has to send Timothy because now false teachers, bad leadership, false teachers, bad doctrine, contentious, fighting, uh, causing dissension in the body of Christ. A lot of bad things were happening, and Paul wrote this not only as an exhortation to Timothy for his own behavior, but he wrote it for Timothy as a means to instruct the church and what, what the expectations of leadership in the church are. We've read the text. I won't read it again in its entirety right now, but we will go through it. Uh, and again, I would encourage you to take out your listening guide because this is a long list. Now, it's just a couple of verses, and you think, oh, okay, it's just seven verses, and the first one's kind of an introduction and lays the groundwork. We spent the whole sermon on that last week. Surely we should be able to get through verse 2, 3, 4, 5. Well, as I've been going through this, man, the Lord has just been teaching me and convicting me, hopefully shaping me and molding me into the, the character, the, 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 the uh, behaviors, the thinking, the attitudes that reflect his glory in the role of a life of a church. We have two pastors in this congregation. Uh, Scott and myself are identified and placed into the position of pastors in this congregation. There's no, nothing that says that you can only have two. Nothing says you have to have two. Nothing says we can't have as many as God calls here to accomplish the purpose that he has for us. But I want us to take a moment and look at these qualifications 
And the first one is very simple. It's very straightforward. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office, reaches out for the office of overseer, he desires, he's inwardly motivated to a noble task. And therefore, an overseer must be, and he begins the first word there, must be above reproach. Now, other translations use that, and they say blameless. You have the Greek word there. I've put those there for those of you who are overachiever students. We got any people like looking up the Greek words? I want you to be able to find those in your concordances or in your dictionaries. Um, but this is kind of a, a, a category, if you will. It means blameless. It means not having, literally, not having a handle that can be grasped. It means not having your life characterized by something that would be uh, an offense, something that would be clearly discernible as a predominant characteristic in your life that would disqualify you from ministry or that would identify you as someone who is not moral or not of high quality of character according to how scripture defines this let me see if i can just illustrate it this way and again my my parents have been very much on my mind of late but several years ago my dad got new teeth now that may not mean anything to you uh but uh he, he, they didn't grow in he bought them and put them in uh and the dentist who prepared these teeth uh, evidently had an excess of material because they were big teeth. And mom would look at him and she'd look at him and she'd look at him and she was talking to us one day and she said, I got to tell you, he's going to have to go back to the dentist because every time he comes down the hall, I think, oh, here comes Luther's, Luther's teeth. And I don't know if you know somebody that has a predominant characteristic. This is saying... All of your predominant characteristics need to be blameless. All of the things that identify you, all of the things that make up moral character, all the things that people can grab hold of need to not be some things and need to be other things. And the first thing that we see, and we covered a lot of these earlier in our, in our qualifications for deacons, so I'm not going to elaborate deeply. But the first thing needs to be, and I've divided these up because there are so many of them. I've divided them up into three characters. He needs to be blameless in his self-discipline. He needs to be blameless. He needs to be above reproach in his self-discipline. And the first phrase there is he must be the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, a one-woman man. And as we said when it came to the diaconate, the same is true here. The issue here is not the status of his marriage or the status of his life. It's the status of his heart. The woman that he's currently married to, is he focused on her? Does he love her? Is he not a philanderer? Is he not someone who's easily distracted or someone who is always paying attention to a, to a member of the opposite sex, a female, as, as she goes by? Is this a man who clearly is devoted to the woman that God has given to him? It's an important understanding. Is he singly devoted to the wife that he has? This is not an issue of whether he is married or not married. Some people have used this to say single men can't be pastors in the church. It's not an issue of the character of his life before he came to Christ. He was made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an issue of whether he's widowed. It isn't status. It's the circumstance. It's the attitude. It's the moral character. And it is that he is to be a man who is singly and wholly devoted to the woman who is his wife, if indeed he does have a wife. This is a moral issue that he's talking about here. The second is sober-minded. Again, New American Standard uses the word temperate. Uh, Nephalios is the, is the Greek word. And it can, it, it, you want a literal translation of this word? It means wineless. Wine 
heartless. It came to also metaphorically mean alert or watchful or wary. Opposite of one who is under the influence of alcohol. You know, you get dull, you get sleepy, you get unwatchful. As a matter of fact, I thought about taking you back to Isaiah where God speaking to the prophet talks about the, uh, the, the, the failure of the watchmen of Israel and what their biggest failure or one of the ways he identified their failure was that they were under the influence and lazy. And this is the opposite of that. This is a watchman, a wa- somebody who is alert, somebody who is sensitive, somebody who is wide awake, who knows what's going on. He's alert physiologically, but he's also alert in terms of his spirit. He's able to at least grasp and see and understand what's happening around him, which is important. A watchful person who knows how to read the signs of the times, knows how to read and study and understand Scripture, the text of God, knows how to look across a congregation and across a community, be open to being taught, one who exercises perception. And so, sober-minded, important. And one who is sober-minded is self-controlled. Now, the root word for this is safe, somebody who's safe. Somebody you feel safe around because they're not going to fly off the handle. Somebody who's you're safe around because they're not going to get angry and, and they're not going to strike you. We'll come to that in a moment. Somebody that is sound. Somebody that is well-balanced. Somebody that is prudent or sensible. All of, I don't know if synonyms help you, they help me. Because there are a lot of words I don't know, so I look for the ones I do and the ones I have experience with. And this means somebody who is well-disciplined in his mind. His mind is ordered. He has a sure and steady and thoughtful, earnest, well-disciplined, well-ordered mind. In other words, he's not controlled by his pleasures. He's not controlled by his passions. His mind is an ordered mind, and as a result of that, we come to the next thing, which is good behavior. Respectable is the next word in this list. And that means somebody who is Worthy of respect in English, obvious. You see the root word there, cosmos? The root word is cosmos. We have an ordered universe that God created. The sun and the moon, the planets, the stars, in their place, following their paths. This is someone who has an ordered life. The opposite of this is chaos and chaotic. A well-ordered life. Uh, A well-ordered mind produces a well-ordered life. A chaotic mind produces a chaotic life. And so you have an ordered life flowing from an ordered mind because everything in his mind has its priority and ranking because everything in his mind has its time and its place. Everything in his life does as well. This This is what flows up from the inside. Is his mind working? Is he not under control of his passions? Is he alert? Is he perceptive? Is he balanced? Is he self-controlled? Does he fly off the handle or is he able to manage his passions and his responses and circumstances? And is there structure and order to his life? Now I put all of those together under one heading. He needs to be um, blameless. He needs to be blameless in his self-discipline because it matters. It matters. A pastor on the... the, uh, west side of town about three years ago was in a heated business meeting and he had a deacon in his church who was opposed to the pastor and the pastor and the deacon had already had words and they were, I don't know what the issue was in their business meeting I do know that it was uh, it was relatively insignificant as far as the kingdom of God as far as things that really matter but they got into a business meeting and the, uh, 
the the deacon stood up and accused the pastor of something, and the pastor walked around from behind his podium, walked up to the deacon, and punched him right in the face. Justified or not? Okay or not? Is that the behavior that you expect from a spiritual leader who is well-ordered in his mind, who is alert, watchful, perceptive? A leader who is sophron, self-controlled in his emotions, uh, that's safe to be around. A le- and it's easy to point the finger at people, guys. It's easy to point the finger at people. Uh, we had, we've had a, a, a staff member in this church <laughs> get struck by someone. And his response was to put his hands in his pockets. Years ago, I was pastoring another congregation here. In, I don't want to call too much out. Years ago, I was pastoring the Deaf Church here in Greenville, and we were at a volleyball tournament. That's a deeply spiritual activity, I want to, I want to tell you. And I had a man who was distressed and upset with me, and it was a volleyball tournament in which we invited other congregations to come. And they came, and we were at the gym at the old Pendleton Street Baptist Church gym over there playing volleyball, and this guy, this guy was mad. And he came up to me in the floor and pushed me as hard as he could because he wanted me out of his way totally and completely. And my first thought was, you get one, you get once, and then I'm going to respond physically. But graciously, not Graciously, the situation was able to be calmed down. I will tell you that it is important that we recognize that we need to learn and grow and develop in the area of self-control when it comes to passions. But this has to be more than that. This is controlling our mind. This is controlling our speech. We're all, this is Again, this is something for all of us. This is something that marks the sign of maturity and morality that the Holy Spirit is working in every life. But particularly, a pastor, elder, and overseer must be alert and perceptive and not be controlled by his pleasures or his passions, particularly those pleasures and passions that are not of God. Are you with me? So there's our first foray. There's our first first, uh, uh, um, uh, introduction, if you will, to the moral character that's required of an elder the second, though, is he needs to be blameless in his relationships. And I love this next word. It is hospitable. He needs to be someone who expresses hospitality. And I would love to take a lot of time to develop this. I'm not this morning. I'm just going to have you look at the Greek word. There, it's made up of two words that many of you will recognize. Philos is phileo. You remember phileo? Brotherly love. One who loves another. And xenos is the root word for like xenophobia, the fear of outsiders. And it means stranger or, far, or foreigner, someone you don't know or someone that you've had no experience with. And the point here is very simple. The pastor of a church, and I will say every believer in a church who is mature and is working toward maturity, but specifically by model and by example in his life and his behavior, the pastor needs to have an open heart open hands, open home, everything that he needs to express love to people who he's not already ministering to, that he doesn't already know, people that are distinct and that are different from him. He has the ability to love strangers, which at least includes he's not a respecter of persons. 
You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you, 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 know, you love your friends, anybody can do that. I say love your enemies. But I would say, we're not even talking about enemies here. We're talking about people who open their minds and their hearts and their lives to new people on a consistent and regular basis. I mean people who are radically different from us. I am to be, and we are to be as a church, a congregation with open doors. A congregation that says, come in, you can come. Come in, we will get to know you, we want to know you. We will not reject you because of your race. We will not reject you because of your nationality. We will not reject you because of your language. We will not close a door upon you because of your economic status or how you're dressed on any particular event. We will not distance ourselves from you based on generic terms. We are, we are willing and ready to love the outsider, to love the strangers, which means, in some cases, loving the strange. It means being willing to love people who are distinct. In this case, he's talking about the leader particularly, and he says he demonstrates the love of Christ, the compassion of God, particularly toward those who are in distress and toward those who are in need. Now, as you go down the list, when we talk about blameless in our relationships, the next thing that he says is the unique characteristic, the, 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 the one that does not apply to every believer in the church, or one that does not apply to every believer in the church. He must be apt to teach or able to to teach. This is the one qualification that has anything to do with what he does functionally. All the rest are strictly kept characteristics of his life. This relates to his role and his function, but that does not mean it's not a moral qualification. The essence of all teaching is model. The essence of all teaching is character. As a matter of fact, I was going to tell you and we were going to take the time to go down each one of those things that just kind of identify able to teach. And I've got a whole other study on this. We will do it at another time. It's been great. I'm just going to tell you. It's been great for me to really dig deep into these passages of Scripture and to see how they fit, to see what is the expectation. It's been convicting. But I will tell you that I believe that the core here, because this is a list in its entirety, with this exception, all has to deal with the character of, of, the, of the speaker. This is a skill set, right? Able to teach. It seems like it's out of place. But I don't believe it is when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And so if you just turn over a page, first Timothy, or a column, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but do what? But set the example, or set the believers an example. And I would say that the moral aspect of being apt to teach is one who practices what he preaches, one who lives what he instructs. This is not a role for those who say simply, do as I say, not as I do. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. But look at this verse. Let no one despise you for your youth, and this is true of any age, but set believers an example in what you say, in your speech, in what you do, in your conduct, in love, how you feel, how you value people, in faith, in your trust in God, in purity, all of the actions all put together, your holiness. And so we are to be those who teach and live what we teach and model what we teach. And so I want to move down that list. 
I think also you need to be humble. The Bible speaks very clearly of those who teach in humility. If you teach out of arrogance and if you teach out of pride, you're undoing all your teaching when it comes to the Word of God. You understand that, right? You guys know any prideful people? Anybody who has all the answers, knows what they're doing, is here to just simply tell people what to do. That is not to be the characteristic of a believer's life. We'll get more to that in just a moment. But it does. there is a gifting of the Holy Spirit of God. There are some who have the gift of prophecy, some who have the gift of foretelling, the gift of being able to proclaim and to teach the Word of God. It is a skill set, but there is a supernatural gifting that the Holy Spirit places in a person that he's placed in this role. And the last one's very simple. I'm hesitant with this one always, but uh, the gift of teaching has to be affirmed. Someone should be able to recognize, the congregation should be able to recognize, yeah, that, that person has a gift of teaching. Um, again, I'll go back to my experience at the Deaf Church. I had a man in Texas who very much wanted to be a teacher. He very much wanted to be a deacon and a leader in the church, and he wanted to, to teach. The problem was he was living with a woman that is not his wife. That's a flag, wouldn't you say? Uh, the other thing was uh, his communication was a challenge at best, but he would teach things that stood in stark contrast to the morality he distributed day in and day out. But he thought he was a good teacher. And so I went, he, he was actually teaching a class when we first went down there. I don't know if you remember all of this, Raul. But when we first went down there. So I went to his class early on. And I talked to the class members of the class because he said, I'm a teacher. I'm a good teacher. And I asked his class, and they said, he's not a good teacher. <laughs> he's not someone who, sh- who should be teaching. And so there comes this affirmation based upon character. There comes this affirmation based upon his attitude. Is he humble? There comes this, char- uh, this, this affirmation that says, yes, I can sense that the Holy Spirit has placed a call upon this individual's life. And the next one on our list, dealing with his relationships. And you you may wonder why I I clump these together. I clump these together because there's a lot of them, and I wanted us to get get an organized thought of mine. We can go much deeper into each of these. But the next one is that he shouldn't be a drunkard. That sounds pretty self-evident, right? Have I lost you guys? That sounds pretty self-evident. The minister should not be a drunkard. Well, what does it mean? The word is parenos, and it literally means one who stays around wine, one who close, holds it close to his breast, breast. And I believe that the application for this is, is one who's not known as a drinker, one who doesn't have a reputation as a drinker, one who doesn't frequent bars, one who doesn't go places that are given to wine, literally, in the authorized, not given to wine. It isn't a reference to someone who drinks unto drunkenness. That's self-evident. This is someone who, like dad's teeth, you wouldn't say, here comes the guy who drinks. Here comes the guy who has this freedom. Here comes the guy whose name and reputation is associated with alcohol, his belief in his behavior with alcohol. But at the very least, it means one who does not submit his mind and his body to the control of alcohol rather than to the control of alcohol of the Holy Spirit. You guys ever know any fighting drunks? If you did, would you admit it in church on Sunday morning? You guys ever, you know, there, there are those, those guys who get lose control and then they become 
angry. They become violent. And that is the next characteristic, plecates. It means one who strikes, literally the striker, the one who is quick to fight, who is, who, who is willing to punch and willing to hit. But the one and, and lives his life that way. He's characterized by that. But it, it means not only striking with your fist or with your feet. It also means striking with your words. It means one who goes on the attack with his tongue. It does include physical violence, violence, but it also includes verbal violence. James chapter 3 gives us a lot about the power of the tongue. But the, what is the opposite? What's the difference of one who is violent? The word in our translation is gentle. It should be someone who is gentle. It should be someone who is patient. King James uses the word patient as the translation here. But Aristotle in, uh, had, gives this word a definition. It says, this word carries the idea of a person who easily pardons human failure. Uh, a, a person who doesn't hold a grudge. A person who doesn't walk around embittered or angry. Years ago, we had a, a, a worship leader in our church, in the deaf church, whose dad had been a pastor. He was 92 years old, and he was visiting her. And he had been a pastor for years. I, I can't remember exactly how many, but I think over 60 years in the pastorate. And I was excited to meet him. We, we got a chance to sit down and talk. And I said, you know, you were, I'm, you know, I'm relatively new in this role. You, you've been a pastor for a long time. Uh, and you know, I'd love to hear about your experience and about how God used you. And he said, it's the hardest job a man can do. And then he began, that, I was fine with that, but then he began to talk about specific instances where people had wronged him over the course of his 40, 50 years in ministry. And I thought to myself, and I prayed for him there, and we talked for a little bit longer, and I was grateful for the time we spent together. And I thought, Lord, I don't want to get to the end of my ministry recounting my disagreements with God's people. I don't want to get to the end of my ministry resentful of the work that you've called me to do. I don't want to invest my life in the work that you've called me to do and hold resentment and grudges. And I pray, God, keep my heart clean. God, keep my heart yielded. Keep my heart surrendered. Help me to forgive easily. Help me to have a short memory. Help me to not be violent, but to be gentle and patient and kind in my interactions with people. And I'll just tell you, God's still working on me. He is continuing to work on me in these avenues. But the next one ties right into it. He says that the man of God should not be quarrelsome. Again, we put the words up there just so that you can get a feel for it. The next slide gives you the not quarrelsome slide. Does the Greek word look familiar to you? The A is a negation, so it's not macho. How about that? Amakos. <laughs> not, 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 uh, not one who picks fights. Not one who is quick to fight. Rather, the contrast of that is one who brings peace. And when Paul is talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's talking about the false teachers that he's and in describing the false teachers that he is uh, to confront, that he wants Timothy to confront. He wants him to do it with kindness, and he wants him to do it with gentleness, and he wants to do it under control, but he wants him to do it unswavering, without wishy-washy, without, without 
balancing back and forth. This is truth. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to be as kind as I can be. We want to reflect the character of God, but this is what God would have us to do. We're going to be obedient regardless. But as someone who doesn't go around picking fights, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, verse 4, it says, He, the false teacher, is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an, and this is the phrase, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. How about that? How about that? You need to be someone who can get along with people, who can love people, who can not produce envy or dissension or slander or evil suspicions. Not someone who's continually stirring people up, but someone who is bringing peace to his relationship. And so the summary for this category, if you will, is a pastor or elder or overseer must be teachable and kind. And I like the word amiable. You may not. It's one of my favorites. It means one who is friendly. One who you would want to spend time with. Someone who is pleasant to be around. He must be teachable, kind, and amiable to everyone. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't confront. We confront people in their sin. We confront people in their error. We can, matter of fact, the bulk of this book is about correcting things that are wrong in the church. And Paul is instructing Timothy, you don't have a choice here, bud. You've got to stand for truth. But it matters how you stand for truth. You stand for truth with kindness and gentleness. And then we move kind of to the third category going through the list. And the third category is you must be blameless or above reproach in his motivations. Because the next word is one who does not love silver. Not a lover of money is how it's translated. Aphilargos, you see the philos again, which is love, and argaros, which is silver, and a which negates. Literally, somebody who's not motivated by money. Someone who doesn't become a pastor to get rich which seems kind of funny to me, but someone who doesn't become a pastor so that he can have an income. And, and I will tell you, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. I was in seminary at New Orleans Seminary, living in Spurgeon Dorm. Had a great roommate. He was a good old country boy that God had called to the ministry and just a super, super guy. But we had kind of a fellowship of guys that were there in the dorm. And we would talk about, where's God going to call us? And I was still thinking, God, I don't know, God... I do deaf ministry, but I didn't sense that was the call on my life yet. I knew that God had called me to pastor or preach. I was still wanting to go to Mexico, frankly, where it's warm and, and, and where the people need the gospel as well. And so I was really focused on that. But I was amazed at the guys who were sitting around talking about, well, yeah, I'm willing to go as far as Alabama, but I really prefer Mississippi. Or I'm willing to go as far as Arkansas, but I sure don't want to go to the West Coast or to New England. And they were limiting. And I thought, why are you in this? Why has God called you this? Surely He's given you a, a passion for His Word, a passion to make disciples, a passion to proclaim the truth. And one of the guys in the room just kind of brought all the conversation to a halt when he said, I'm going to go where the salary is the best. I'm going to tell you, that is a flag of massive proportions. That is exactly what he's describing here, that one who is called by a church to lead a church, and frankly, you and me, everyone who reflects the role of Christ, are not to be primarily motivated by money and by income. As a matter of fact, the role in this, totally and completely, is to say, I entrust my life to you. God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I will serve the congregation you want me to serve. I will seek to reach the city you want me to reach. And I'm going to trust you to feed my family. 
I'm going to trust you to provide for transportation. I'm going to trust you to meet our needs. We brought nothing into this world. We take nothing out of it. God has promised to provide for us all that we need to accomplish His purpose. Suzanne and I can bear witness to this. I, I tell church planters, you're not re- ready to plant a church until you've sat with your family around the table and thank God for food He has not yet provided. And there are times in our life in ministry where we just sat there and said, God, we don't have any idea what's going to happen next. And God has always been faithful to provide for our needs. Unfailingly faithful to provide for our needs. And so the life of a pastor, but I'm going to tell you also the life of any believer that walks after God needs to be not grasping after silver, not grasping after gold, but grasping for God and trusting in His provision. Totally and completely. He is all we need. He takes care of the provision for His people. Amen? So one who is not a lover, one who is not motivated by silver. And then we get to the next phrase. We get to the, the next verse. And it's a, a really a, a longer passage uh, that uh, is important that we get. get uh, verse. What is, I can't read the numbers. Is that verse 4? He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Verse 4 and 5. He's got to be the spiritual leader in his home. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's the hardest part of this whole thing. The home is where God refines your character. I don't know if you guys have ever read or studied or what the, the process of a sanctifying marriage. But God puts you in a house with somebody, in a relationship with somebody, a love committed relationship with somebody who's from a different background, somebody who has a different personality, somebody who is designed to be complementary to you but distinct from you. And He puts you there together, and as every marriage has rough edges and has, has conflicts that you get to work through, that you get to learn from, that you get to grow from. And men, nobody knows you better than your wife does. And women, nobody knows you better than your husband does. And so the context of the marriage is a refining process that the Holy Spirit uses to conform us to the image of His Son. And then in the midst of all that growth, God may give you children. And we love our kids. We love our kids up until they're about two years old. I'm kidding. We love our kids. We love our kids. But I will tell you, they teach you a lot about patience. They teach you a lot about grace. They teach you a lot about faithfulness. I will tell you, some of the scariest things in my life as a parent has been when my, I hear my kids saying statements that I made, mimicking me and copying me. And what he's saying here in this passage of Scripture is, is, is men, if you're going to aspire to this role, you ought to be the spiritual leader in your home. If you can't lead your home, you can't lead the church. This is where you're proven out. This is where you get the experience. This is where you get all that takes place in your life. There has to be this demonstration. And the, the, the King James Version says rule. The, the um, ESV says manage. The word there simply means you need to lead. You need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You need to not provoke your children to wrath, but to 
instruct them. And it should be evident in the life of your family. Alright? So it's important that he needs to be the spiritual leader in his home according to this passage of Scripture. And then the last one is is simply that he shouldn't be a neophyte. He shouldn't be a novice. He shouldn't be wet behind the ears. And the reason that he's not a neophyte in this text is because he may be prone to the disgrace of Satan. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What was the devil's sin? What was it? Pride. Arrogance. He wanted to be above God. Any minister that wants to lord it over people is in danger of this. And this is more dangerous for a recent convert than one who has walked along his way and has been humbled by the Spirit of God in his life. There's something about leading that says, be careful about being too much too quick. You remember James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Brethren, be not many of you teachers, for theirs or ours is the greater condemnation. We need to be cautious about lifting someone up too soon because the temptation to pride can be overwhelming. You guys remember Diotrephes? Does his name ring a bell? In 3 John, John is writing a brief letter to a church that he has sent some speakers to. And Diotrephes shut him down, wouldn't let him come. Wouldn't host him in the church at all. John writes this and he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, who has to be the one who makes all the decisions, does not acknowledge our authority. And so you have to be cautious of pride, and that's the reason why it's not a novice. You can't be a neophyte. And of course, the last phrase is simply, you must be well thought of by outsiders. And that means simply has a good reputation in the community. That simply means there's no moral failure in his character that would harm the witness of his life or of the church. And that's true of the pastor, but it's true of all of us, guys. So here's this quickly. I, and I'll tell you an experience. Uh, yesterday morning... Somebody had us out running in cold weather <laughs> early in the morning, but I got there early, and I was running a little bit just to warm up. It takes me a really long time to warm up, all right? I'm just going to lay that out there. And so I was running, and I was running up in front of the Green Apartments, which is where 1100 South Main Street is where the, where the church building used to stand. And there were a group of people standing around. They had their dogs, and one guy had a bike, and as I was running... Somebody said, one time said, I, I won't do a sport where I never see anybody smile when they do it. And I never see a runner smiling when he runs. And so I've made it a practice to try to smile when I run. <laughs> and I was running past his group and I said, good morning. And mostly I gasped out, good morning. And they replied, good morning. And one of the group said, good morning, pastor. And the other guy said, hey, Marty. I have no idea who these people are. I didn't recognize on one of them. No idea. Matter of fact, I hope they're back next Saturday. I'm going to go try to, try to find out who they are. But can I tell you that you're known by people you don't know? That I'm known by people I don't know? That we as a church, you as a church, family, we're known by people. Our reputation in the community. Now, I will tell you that there are people who... who who's spit on the ground when I walk by. I don't mean that you're universally loved. All right? I don't mean that you're universally loved. 
What I mean is that your moral character and your moral reputation needs to not be a detriment. You need to have a good testimony in the community. Well, that's a long list. You feel like we've been down a journey this morning? So why are we taking the time to do this? Certainly not so I can tell you I've arrived. I haven't. God is still shaping me. God is still changing me. God is still working on me. And I pray that he continues to do so. But the pursuit of my life needs to be this. And frankly, I'm going to tell you, apart from the ability to teach, the pursuit of your life needs to be the same thing. We are to be a church that is compelling because our leadership has demonstrated some morality and character in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're to be a compelling church because we have people who are identified as servant leaders who model and example what it means to walk after Christ. We are to be a compelling church because the membership says, hey, we're family, we're brothers and sisters, we're in this together, being obedient to God to accomplish His purpose. And that together we will bring glory to God by making mature disciples, which is me following Christ and bringing others who are following Christ along with me. Of all nations, mature disciples of all nations, starting in the West End, but certainly not limited to that, going wherever and however and whenever God calls us to go. Isn't God good? He's good and He's faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the opportunities that You give us to look at some of these seemingly academic texts, but they're important. They're important because they're in Your Word and we need to understand them. They're important because they list qualifications and it almost seems just just like a, a, a position description, a list. But it's more than that. It, it is the application of your life-transforming truth and the presence of your Holy Spirit in the heart of those you call to lead your church. It is to not tell people to go where we haven't been, but it is to go first and to bring people with us. It is to dedicate ourselves to study. It is to dedicate ourselves to teaching and the ministry of the word by first allowing your word to transform us and then father by encouraging that teaching that instructing in that directing in the in the processes that make that a reality jesus you are attractive you're the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by you it is your character that we want to display in our lives so please make this truth make this so applicable in our hearts and our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.